So it, it's, it's definitely like really important to have the client understand that if, if I'm going to say we need to do competitive research, what it's going to cover and what the analysis, if I'm going to do user research, you know, what it's going to cover. If they already feel that they've nailed it, they have a prototype, which is very common. If I, if I get involved with the startup or enterprise, I'll say, well, have we tested the prototype? Typically, no. Have you done landing page experiments? Typically, no. So I will try to, you know, get convince them to do any of the things that I think are the weaknesses that are the blind spots so that they are no longer blind spots and build confidence, you know, and really understand what are the features that are crucial and what are the ones that can potentially wait. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives, where we explore why, how and what design and designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and most innovative creatives on the planet, to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In this episode, I chat with Jamie Levy, author of the book UX Strategy and design consultant, but also a former professor as well as UX designer at companies such as Huge or Kisco. With Jamie, I discussed the key pillars of UX strategy, as well as the step-by-step -step process. Jim and I explore the importance of testing and getting quick market validation using social media and product analytics. In addition, she highlights why you actually can't disconnect product and UX strategy, but also how to find product market fit and design meaningful features and the importance of not adding too many features to a product and keeping it really focused on the core value proposition. A pure goldmine of knowledge in the episode and I really hope you enjoy it. All right, I'm here today with Jamie Levy. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sebastian. So you wrote a book called UX Strategy, which I had the chance to read as well, and I really enjoyed. And um, so we're really looking forward to hear about your insights around UX strategy, uh, but then just overall also around uh, your learnings when it comes to your, your career. I think it would probably be really great for the start if you could just give the audience maybe a bit of context about your journey, some of the experiences you made. Well, let's just say my journey has been quite long. Um, I started long before the web with uh, creating uh, floppy disk magazines. So I really came to interactive media from the desire to tell stories, uh, particularly nonlinear stories. You know, I studied film in, in college. But um, once the web came out, I decided, obviously, because I already had skills um, making interactive content, um, to to continue on that path and i started uh you know i was a creative director of a a big online magazine called word and then you know had to survive somehow the newyork.com experience uh which was very crazy and competitive with lots of money i had a funded startup so i be, i had the experience of being a startup founder and uh we made content we made websites of course and but and a lot of prototypes um i was always really into pushing uh you know interfaces you know to create uh innovative experiences and then after 9-11 i came back to los angeles where I grew up and started a family and needed a stable career. And there is this thing called information architecture. There's calling it interaction design, user experience design. I was like, whatever they want to call it, it looks like what I do, which is this weird intersection of being able to 
design, manage, and even code if necessary, everything. And that it's better for me to oversee these things and, and really have my opinion on the on the strategy. And so that was when I started climbing the ladder in the agency world of being mid-level lead manager, director, um, until I realized then that all I really wanted to do was strategy. I didn't want to manage a bunch of people unless they worked for me and I was margining on them. So I started my own product strategy consultancy in 2010. And then by 2015, after also teaching part-time this entire 30-year career, I noticed there was no book on product strategy or UX strategy. So I wrote one and it became a bestseller. And I did, I had a lot of help, editors who helped me make it good because I wanted it to be good enough to be a college textbook and also a how-to guide for, for anybody, you know, who is aspiring strategist. So I wrote the first book. It did really well. You know, it still uh, has kind of holds it on, holds its own in terms of not, there not being another book out there like it for teaching product strategy techniques. And so that was why I did the second edition during the pandemic which is a fine time to write a book because uh, there's nothing else to do. And so um, now the second book is out and I'm hoping the pandemic's over so I can start touring like before and doing workshops and meeting product makers worldwide. It's awesome. Yeah, I think there were, you know, a couple of very contextual insights you gave also in your book regarding things, you know, how, how you strategy also changed during COVID and some of the things that um, might have to be adapted in that kind of new world. So I think there were also, I think, a very contextual and new learnings. I think you can, uh, you had the chance to put into the book then. Uh, was there any project in your um, career where you for the first time noticed the positive impact that you can drive to your work as UX strategy? Any kind of particular favorite project that comes to your mind where you really, where it really clicked for you when it comes to the positive uh, impact you can do through UX strategy? I was doing product strategy when I was conceiving even my earlier work you know, but that was my work for me. So of course I could have the strategy and because I was the boss or even for my dot com, it's like I was the boss. So of course I could do product strategy, but product strategy, you know, when you're not the boss is really about building consensus and working with others and collaboration and getting buy-in and getting people to see your ideas. And so what that takes more of is being able to understand how to involve other people on the team and the stakeholders so that they are along for the ride that you don't just come at the very end of your strategy phase and say, okay, here's what the product is. That's a really difficult way to get people to buy in. And so I think the big thing I learned was once lean startup came out and I moved into the world of running experiments, making lightweight techniques, having the stakeholder involved, that was when things shifted. And the, and the biggest shift was during uh, this first startup while, uh, we, while Lean Startup was, you know, we were just trying to figure out like how to augment everything. So we were doing things in this sort of, you know, build, measure, learn uh, framework. And I did this guerrilla user research study 
Uh, we used a cafe. The startup founder was building a startup, a service to help people who were addicted to drugs, um, who were looking for rehabs in Los in 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 the United States. And uh, you know, I don't think this is the same for Germany or or the EU, but in the U.S., it's a it's a private business. So if somebody's addicted to drugs, and and if they don't go to jail, there are other choices to pay, you know, $20,000, $50,000 a month to go to these really um, expensive rehabilitation centers. And so we wa he wanted to build a platform to help them negotiate and, and find better deals. But nobody had signed up on his website after a year, and he had spent a million dollars. And I, he kept telling me, oh, just redesign it, Jamie. It's the UX. The UX is bad. And I said, I don't know. If the you just making it work better is going to get you more, you know, more customers. So I convinced him that we just create a prototype that even looked better and have it and then have actual. I recruited people who were uh, former drug addicts and alcoholics to come meet us at this cafe. And I had the stakeholder take notes as if he was my note taker, even though he was in his 60s. You know, I'm like, he's a note taker. Don't just ignore him. You know? And that way he was sitting there face to face while I brought in potential target customer after target customer. And I would show them the prototype and I would say, would you use this? And over and over, they said, no, there is no way I'm going to book a rehab without visiting it first. And that messed up his business model because you, if they need a tour first, then of course the rehab is going to, you know, take them as the customer and he loses the business. It's not like, uh, you know, the hotels.com or, or, you know, the other mental models he had. And so I would say by the third interview out of 10, he was like, we're done. You're right. Not that you're right. He's a, he said, I get like after hearing from the customer and seeing them and hearing them say the reasons that they wouldn't use it. He just finally said, uh, Oh, Jamie, it was Russian guy. You killed my business, you know, and he was joking. I didn't kill his business. His business was going to die with, with or without me. But that was when by having him there, you know, it was, he could not deny the truth. And that just, even though he didn't continue on with the project, I probably saved him another $5 million. And, and that was really the turning point for me. This is really a great story. I mean, getting that kind of honest feedback from people in user research interviews is also sometimes not easy, depending on which participants you have. Uh, I can imagine, uh, or at least like I made uh, uh, some experiences in that regard, but it really shows how important it is to also bring in other stakeholders to your user research session and what kind of power it can have. Uh, because something I notice sometimes is like, if you have a strong disconnect between the product strategy, the product management and the user research, uh, or even the UX UI design uh, and the user research, if there's no participation, then it's sometimes going to be hard to convince people with the user research insights, uh, or at least there is less empathy. And um, I think you, well, your story really shows like if, I mean, if you have the chance to bring in the founder or really like a key stakeholder of a, of a company, it can really open people's minds. Yeah. You know, that having evidence is a lot better than just telling people their idea won't work. Oh, I know more than you. I've been doing this for so long, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work. They have to 
They really have to be in, involved. We need to be moving more into a flat organization, a, a hierarchy at work where there's not this like, A, it's not siloed and there's the dev team over here and the designers here and they only talk when there's a stand up. You know, this, mm-hmm. is, yeah. this is such bullshit. Uh, you know, people really need to collaborate. I know it's hard in enterprises, but it's, you know, this is, really important this is why you know the buzzword digital transformation is a buzzword is you know people know they need to build bridges and and get people things move a lot faster and seamlessly when there's these connective tissues in place oh absolutely i mean how do you usually do it when you set up your user research sessions when it comes to having key stakeholders participate do you send out uh, basically an open schedule where just everyone can join as a anonymous uh guest basically in the interview uh do you do it through recordings and try to share that out and just try to make sure they save themselves some time to listen to these recordings do you take highlights of the recordings yeah uh, how do you do it That has definitely shifted since the pandemic because before the pandemic, online interviews were a lot more challenging because not that many people used Zoom or Skype comfortably where they were like, yeah, sure, I'll share desktop. You know, you know, since the pandemic, most people have had the chance to have, you know, because they were either getting their kids to do their online school or they were mm. working from home. The whole thing with user research from the standpoint of the participant is you don't want them to feel like a guinea pig. That's why I think, you know, focus groups or any sort of situation with video cameras and usability labs, it doesn't feel right to me. I feel like people feel like they're being judged in some way. It's not natural and that you're not necessarily going to get the truth. You're going to get someone who's either nervous or saying something that they think you want to hear. So in my first book, I said, you know, for on-site, don't set up cameras, like take copious notes. So I think in a on-site meeting, you want to just bring one person with you and, and then another, like bring the developer one day, bring the stakeholder another day, bring different people. You know, I think with highlight reels, they feel like watching a movie trailer. They're like, yeah, that's what, that's all the negative things they said, but what about the good things? Maybe you cut them out. So you, you definitely want to, you know, make sure that, that they, that if you're going to have those, that they feel balanced. But the thing with having different stakeholders, you know, participating, I think it's okay to have maybe one person on the call. Like I did interviews for one company before, before the pandemic where it was over Skype. And I said, okay, my note taker is going to be on the call. And, um, and I would introduce him and then he could listen in, in real time. I mean, we could have lied and he could have had his entire team listening in, but I think just having one of the, 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 the owners of the business sit in and while I was doing the calls was, was good enough. I think now with Zoom that we can record things and they could watch them and immediately get the transcript. It makes things a lot easier for people and potentially you can get a lot more buy-in because you could send the highlight reel along with the transcript of the whole interview with you know things highlighted in the, in the transcript and they could see everything in context. Like one of the key challenges is to to have them find time for it really to dig into that. 
right? Uh, I think that's sometimes that can be a challenge. I mean, one thing that um, I really enjoyed reading uh, your book uh, was that you had a quite detailed structure also on like how do you how do you do market and user research. Uh, and it did a quite detailed explanation in terms of like, how do you document your insights actually? I think that would be really great for the audience if you could just share that maybe. You mean like how I have actual slides in the book of how to sh share presentation briefs for both user research and well, competitive research? Well, I listened <laughs> to the audiobook, so I can't talk about the slides. Oh, you didn't see those. Book. That's right. Yeah, but uh, um, you did an explanation on, you know, how do you structure um, your insights when it comes to table structure and, and certain um, visual methods? Yeah, I still can't believe that there's no... You know, articles or examples, you know, we, my researcher and I, when we were doing the second book, we were like, okay, let's make sure how we tell people how to do these briefs. We're telling them, you know, let's look at the best of, let's see what we can find from our friends at Forrester and Gardner and, and top research companies. And what we got back was just like, Direct, you know, it's just like these long format documents, you know, with no visuals. And it was like, they're not going to read this or these presentation briefs that just had a bunch of pictures. And so we kind of had to like come up with a framework that was what we thought was the best way to present it. And it was a lot of fun really figuring it out, like looking at what was out there and taking the best of, but really taking it up a notch and, and explaining it because I feel like that's where that's where the ball gets dropped is we can do all this, all this great product strategy, but if we can't get people to look at our learnings in a way where they can like, aha, get it, then we fail. And so um, coming up with this uh, way to explain it. And, and, and by the way, there's reference images with the audible book. Um, I mentioned in the Audible book, and I'm going to be updating the files to mention it more just so people know that they're on the, on the web. I think, you know, as you mentioned, it, it's really important to have that kind of reference for them to, to see things in a visual way and break it out between, did we validate the value proposition? Did we validate the business model? Did we validate the key features or more likely invalidate? What are the additional insights? You know, just laying things out in a very clear way is just really important. So I was really excited to actually include Volkswagen's case study in the book, which is in the reference images. I'll, I'll send you the link if you didn't, uh, didn't hear that part of the audiobook. So I actually have a slide from one of their briefs that they presented to stakeholders of their landing page smoke test. And it was so great to have this deliverable from not only a non-American company, some big German company, an enterprise, international company that's doing innovative experiments. And to have that slide, I thought it was like, that was like the thing when Sebastian gave it to me, I was like, I have to have this in my book because then people will believe me that these companies are running experiments and that stakeholders are looking at them. So, so yeah, you touched on something that is really big, I think. So when it, when it comes to, um, you know, picking the right focus points within your, within your UX strategy phase, I mean, you already mentioned market research, um, user research, uh, running experiments, et cetera. How do you, uh, how do you balance it and how do you, uh, find the right scope basically for, for a client? 
definitely you need to talk to them about where they're at in their own process and what are the things about their the solution that they have in mind that have that are still in the land of assumptions and they are just saying, oh yeah, we think this, but they haven't proven it. You need to know what are the knowns and what are the unknowns and attack the unknowns. So let's say they have amazing competitive research. Yeah, right. Uh, They always say they do and they rarely do. Um, Maybe they'll have some research on businesses, but it'll never really, rarely if the UX team isn't involved, it, it won't include really looking at the products and services from, you know, all these different angles. So like, especially around funnels and around how they're leveraging social media and and other things that um, a lot of when marketing people do it, they may not understand these things. So it, it's, it's definitely like really important to have the client understand that if if I'm going to say we need to do competitive research, what it's going to cover and what the analysis, if I'm going to do user research, you know, what it's going to cover. If they already feel that they've nailed it, they have a prototype, which is very common. If I, if I get involved with the startup or enterprise, I'll say, well, have we tested the prototype? Typically, no. Have you done landing page experiments? Typically, no. So I will try to, you know, get convince them to do any of the things that I think are the weaknesses that are the blind spots so that they are no longer blind spots and build confidence, you know, and really understand what are the features that are crucial and what are the ones um, that could potentially wait. It's still hard to believe that you can come into a company and you ask them if they have done user research on the prototype and they still say no these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, otherwise, like, how do you come up with the prototype? I'm wondering. Um, (laughs) One of the topics you also touch in your book is um, benchmarking. Uh, You have done a lot of benchmarking on other products as part of your UX strategy work. How do you uh, how do you approach that usually uh, the benchmarking part and uh, when do you think it's necessary um, in the UX strategy work and um, how do you pick um, the right uh, the right competitors and products to choose from? Right, so that's deep in chapter five on how to do the competitive analysis and basically once you've done all the research, so let's say you have a spreadsheet and you have all your data points on you know how much traffic do they have or how many downloads of the app how are they leveraging social media what are the revenue streams and you have all that and you've gone through the next step which is color coding it and really figuring out like what are the companies you know like the green you know these guys are doing doing really well with this thing or red they're doing poorly you know this is something i laboriously explained throughout the book. Um, You know, I know it might be a boring chapter, but it's the most important one for for doing this stuff. And if for someone who wants to do strategy, you know, when they hear terms like SWOT analysis or benchmarking, they're like, ah, I don't have an MBA. So I explain it, how to do that process so it isn't so scary. And so the benchmarking comes into play. Once you have, you've looked at the competitors and you see the what's good about them, what's bad, and you've done a SWOT analysis from the competitor's perspective where you're saying these are their strengths, these are their weaknesses, here's the threats, here's the opportunities for them. And then you, then it's time to start really benchmarking so you could do, like take a stance and say, okay, these are the ones that are the most threatening, these ones and not so much. But in order to do benchmarking, good data out requires good data in. 
right? Garbage in, garbage out. So really I teach a very systematic way to do benchmarking that isn't so scary that somebody with an MBA could definitely do as long as they, if you're capable of following a, a recipe to make food, you definitely can do um, a competitive analysis. Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually something I really enjoy reading because um, you did a quite hands-on advice there. And it was really, I think, uh, really interesting to hear like how you actually do it in terms of the overall structure. So one thing I think that's also interesting is that in your book, you talk very often about social media, even if you're benchmarking part, you're talking about social media, right? I mean, social media would, I would consider more as marketing, right? But still, uh, it could potentially be interesting for um, your strategy. Can you outline that a little bit? Why, um, you know, certain aspects of marketing you feel are part of your work and UX strategy as well? Is it about what kind of key features and kind of key product aspects the, the competitor is highlighting? Or what's your general thoughts on the intersection between UX strategy and, and marketing? I think in, in many cases, certainly with uh, um, e-commerce, the social media is, is tantamount because it's the top of the funnel. You can spend you know, large amounts of money running Facebook campaigns or Twitter campaigns or LinkedIn campaigns or whatnot. And that it gets very expensive and people see them as sponsored ads. They're not as legit as when another person shares, hey, I'll just use myself as an example because I'm a business as well. You know, let's say someone reads about the book and they go to Amazon and they, they say, that's an interesting description. I, I, uh, I might like that book. Um, but when they actually read the reviews, they can become more convinced, but they still might think the reviews could be fake. But then when somebody else tells them, Hey, that's a good book. Now that's a verified source. And so with social media, you have trusted people saying, Hey, I just did this exchange or I bought this shirt here or I just used this app and it helped me with this. And when that's on social media, that brings in customers, potential customers to download your app or to do a transaction on your app or website without you having to pay. And so you need, you, you can really leverage that to bring in leads who are going to be uh you know, far more open to your value prop than just random people who happen to click on your ad. But people talk a lot about, they always quote Mark Andreessen, like, oh, to have a successful startup, you got to have product, product market fit, you know, meaning the product needs to fit the market that you plan to, you know, market the product in. But just as, or if not more important is you got to have product channel fit. And channels are Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, whatever these social media, these channels that you build to the customer. So you might reach them initially on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever. Um, but ultimately, let's say I, I even run a, a Facebook ad and I run the Facebook ad. Just, let's just use my book as an example. And I run the Facebook ad to all the UX people in Germany saying, uh, you know, want to, you know, you tired of being a wireframe monkey, blah, blah, blah. And I run it at everybody. I run it at all of Germany and I get like two clicks out of a hundred. And I'm like, ah, oh, that was expensive. 
Well, what if instead then I run it now, I'm going to run it at people who have graduate degrees and who are um, in the certain age group and are certain, you know, that, you know, list user experiences, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden my click rate goes up to 20 or 30 out of 100. So I'm slowly tinkering with these levers and doing split tests on just who I'm targeting and increasing my probability of gaining customers. So once I figure out that magic formula, all businesses know this who use social media, I can use it over and over. I have to, of course, change with the times. It's like really understanding how you're going to reach your customers when social media is an important part. It's got to be part of the strategy and it needs to be baked into your app or your website development so that all of these hooks are in there um, opportunities for people to share or give away promo codes. I mean, Uber built their whole business by saying, hey, bring a friend in. Uh, we'll give you a free ride and them a free ride. And then once that person who never experienced a ride hailing service experienced it, then they became hooked. And it's the same thing that I think it, you know, if, if social media, by looking at your competitors, if you see that they're not using it, this could be a, an opportunity for you to really step in and say, okay, how can we leverage it um, to, to bring in more customers on a regular basis? Uh, I think this is so interesting. I think you're highlighting some important aspects there when it comes to yeah modern day uh, product marketing uh, and the importance of authenticity when it comes to uh, like who's recommending your product and how important that is compared to like a, a faceless uh, ad. Super interesting. You already mentioned split test and you were mentioning uh, also in your book, the topic of smoke test. Um, so really trying out uh, different ideas, basically, maybe different product ideas that you have, different features, etc., through social media, right? So that means you basically have different features that you think could be relevant or a certain product idea, right? And you would run a social media ad uh, to kind of validate that with a certain target group and then just compare certain KPIs, right? Just to be clear, run it, let's say a Facebook ad that then drives people to a landing page and tries to get them to click or to give their email address. I mean, you really need to have that, you know, getting people to click on an ad is one thing, but getting them to convert to download an app is, is, is another and so, so yeah, so that's, that's part of that, that for sure. I'm wondering how do you usually approach that uh, process? So when do you think that is a necessary part of your UX strategy work? When you try to incorporate it into the work, uh, maybe you don't do it with every project, but there are certain projects where maybe you think it's, it's, it's a relevant part. Uh, so that would be the first part of the question. The second part is what every click in a funnel reduces, you always have people falling off, right? So basically with each click, basically you have people, you know, that you lose, right? So yeah. also I'm wondering how do you balance that considering the amount of data you maybe need? When, when, uh, whenever you're not sure who your customer segment is, yeah, I don't like Facebook or Zuckerberg for sure. But as far as micro-targeting and the algorithms on Facebook, I like that a lot <laughs> for learning. So Whenever, if you aren't sure about, if you do have a product that you could market on the internet, one of my clients right now is a healthcare company that has a product for uh, patients and their caregivers. 
And so even something in the healthcare sector that isn't being monetized by sales, there's an opportunity to create a landing page and an opportunity to run ads or to post queries in, in Facebook groups, try to get feedback and figure out if the idea that we have, our business concept, even if it's uh, we only have a few screens, that's enough to get in front of people to elicit feedback. And so really figuring out how you're going to target those people and be able to start collecting evidence. I feel like it's very important. If you even look at Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas, you'll see there's a, a component box in there for, for channel, you know? So obviously it's, it's very important component of a, of a business model. Now let's see your second part question. It sounds a little bit like you're talking about, doing an experiment on an existing product. And, and if we're talking about growth design and trying to tinker with uh, funnels to ultimately optimize the product, that's one thing. And I don't get heavy into that at all in my book. My book's more focused on a product that's being re-envisioned or it's about one that doesn't exist at all. And so for me, it's more about thinking about, okay, we're going to do a, a small study. We're going to spend $100, let's say, on advertising to bring people to a landing page. Or we're going to do a small study and put a prototype in front of five people. We're going to get back some signal, whether it's from the landing page or from the prototype, in terms of what percentage of them are, are interested in certain things. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to either you know, build, measure, learn. We're going to either change the product and do another study maybe of the same size, or we're going to double down and say, okay, well, they, they, this group really liked it. Now let's increase the sample uh, size of, of the participants. So it's really about trying to get a stronger and stronger signal. And if you find, if we're talking about drop-off points, if we're running an ad and we and we let's say we run two two ads, are they are, are they dropping off because you know are they being targeted at two different people or um, and one group is doing is is clicking more on the ad? Are we tar are we running two ads that in concept are different? Let's go with the ad that is getting more traffic um, and really just just ramping things up. Um, as you learn, and um, but it's about understanding like how to identify what are these levers that can be tweaked. Like almost think about it like like you're a DJ, you know, and you're mixing two records, and you're a you know, and, and you've got all these things that you can play with the treble and the balance, and and all of these knobs. You know, it's like look at that and say that's my product, and that just be I can change one, and that can change the sound so much to make it better or worse. But you can't change three things at once because then you're like, whoa, what did I just do? Exactly. You know, you got to really say, okay, if I change this, what's the cause? What's the effect? And identifying those things until you have a beautiful song. Yeah. Or product. Uh, sometimes that can be a challenge in terms of like the overall things that you you want to analyze and kind of compare right because maybe you maybe there are 10 things that you think could be the reason right and then you have to then have to predict like you have to do a thesis and said i guess could be this one thing and let's try that um, but i think that sometimes can be a challenge and it really needs a proper documentation as well um, yeah if you tracking do a, it if you don't do a proper tracking documentation it's it's very difficult 
Yeah. I mean, that was why I created the new um, tools in my toolkit that comes with the book. Or, I mean, it's for free for anybody. If you go to userexperiencestrategy.com, my product strategy toolkit, you can just uh, fill in your email address. It'll send you a link and then you've got the toolkit. There are two different new tools in there, one for landing page experiments and one for user research to help people with the documentation, to help people state their hypotheses, to figure out what it is they need to learn for designing the experiment. Because when people move into this multivariant testing, meaning they're changing five things at once, how do you isolate? What is the thing that worked? You know what I mean? And so it, yeah. it it's if you're going to do experiments, they need to be controlled because as soon as they're not, what you learn, it, it becomes very hard to, to say, well, what was the cause and what and then what was the effect if, if, if the experiment is not controlled? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Talking maybe uh, a little bit about features, especially if you you know start to work on a, on a new product, maybe a different features ideas that could be sort of the main feature of a product. Or even if you have a, a product that is out for a longer time, you continuously improve the experience and you add features and features and features, right? <laughs> At some point, you have a lot of features and it's just easy to add more, right? Um, sure. and the problem at some point becomes what's the key essence, right? And what is really the key value proposition of the product? I think that can be sometimes a challenge. And either if you're starting out for a new product to pick that, uh, I think there the benchmarking comes into place as well. Like, do we have a differentiator here? Uh, what do we focus on? So we need to pick that. And uh, how do I keep balance with that in the long run? Like as I'm adding more features, as my product gets right. more mature over time. I've never thought about it this way, but I'm going to say it because I think it's funny. I don't know if you have this in Germany, but we certainly have it here, which are, I met a German woman that did this hoarding. You know what hoarding is where people like they go to Mauer park or they go to yeah. whatever flea market, yeah, they just yeah. bring stuff in or they, or, or women or what, whoever they go buy more clothes. Right. Yeah. Like my theory is if I'm going to buy something, something has to go. If I'm going to bring something in my house, a piece of artwork, something has to go. If you're going to add more features, maybe you should try taking some out. If you're going to bring in features that you think are going to add value, why don't you remove the ones that just make it more complex or people aren't using? Looking at features like their ingredients in a recipe, you know, this idea that more is better. Like more isn't better, more is bad. That's why they call it feature creep, you know. Um, so you really need to figure out, like, I, I think what is the, you know, the whole idea around value innovation from Blue Ocean Strategy is really narrowing, focusing on the primary utility of the product. You know, that's why Uber was better when it came out, because it only did one thing. And now it's got like a million different things it can do. It's far more complex. But this idea of taking a more less is more minimalistic approach to things And really making what it's supposed to do just the best ever. And everything else is noise at this point, you know, until you get absolute, you know, like success with what you think are the key features. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can really see that also with, you know, as a product evolves, you know, if if you look at Facebook, maybe on uh, the Facebook desktop version, <laughs> yeah. for example, right? If the, when the start, the product start out compared to what you can do there, 
these days, right? I mean, like there is just endless amount of, of things you can do, but you know, a lot of people don't even know about all the functionality. If you ever try to use WeChat, <laughs> it's like Facebook plus this plus that, you know, and it's like, I, I messed around with it, especially when I was in China and I was like, I can't figure this thing out. You know, it's so overfeatured. Of course, it's very successful, but I bet a lot of its success is because it came first to market with something you know, so I, if you are not first to market and you're coming in with a new product, you really need to say, okay, how can I have differentiation without, you know, being over featured, you know, and really just focusing on doing, you know, what you say you're going to do, you know, really, really well. So you're, you know, you're just, you know, making the competition irrelevant. I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah, definitely not the easiest task, you know, because it's not just, uh, again, it's not just the, 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 the main, the technology team has invested a lot of time into developing these features. Maybe there's a certain, even a certain business uh, cut on it. It's definitely uh, a hard challenge to throw things out of the window as the product becomes more. I know. You can see this with so many products that oh. you know, they're just losing their, like their, oh, what, what, what made it fun in the beginning. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I know. I have this one company I'm working with and we did, we did everything right for the strategy part. And then I talked to one, someone on the team months later and he's like, yeah, the developers just like, they ran out of time. So they just like willy nilly threw this out and threw that out. And it's a, it's just not the same product. And it's like, how did these guys get to have this level of control or influence where they're deciding on a holistic level, what should be in the product or not based on, you know, the technical level of effort, like get rid of them, like gone, you know, like if, if they aren't, if they can make those decisions and not elevate them and just allowing that to happen, that's like a disease, you know, you're just destined for failure if your company is run like that. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think sometimes something people also sometimes underestimate is the uh, impact of nuances uh, in a product. Um, so if you think about, you know, Tinder versus uh, Bumble, for example, right? I mean, you could technically argue, well, it's, it's very similar because people often put other products into boxes, right? They say like, it's an app like this, or this app already exists, right? Well, it may not yeah. exist in that flavor, you know? So, uh, you know, and there can be a small tweak to a flow um, that makes all the difference and creates a complete new product. So I think that's, that's also something I think very interesting where I think people underestimate really how much difference they can make with a different, by putting a different flavor onto something, but changing things slightly and attract completely new, different uh, user base as well. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good example. And same with Twitter. Well, is there a key feature, you know, this weird character limit that many who wanted a blah, blah, blah on their blogs exactly. are like, oh, no, I can't I can't handle concision, you know, but they built their business around concision. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other very new things that Twitter did, of course, but, you know, that was their key feature um, was was, you know, forcing people to say more with less. And so. So, yeah, you know, I, I think I think it's important to really figure out like how this nuance or this, you know, tweak on even one feature can can make a product stand out. And ultimately what it's really doing 
is it's potentially shifting its customer segment. So in the case of Tinder to Bumble, even though, you know, they did rip off <laughs> Tinder, uh, it's basically, you know, and, and there's all kinds of patent infringement lawsuits and so forth. But the nuance that they stated of, uh, well, you know, women initiate the conversation, even if let's just say that's that's OK, what they did. And that was a big distinction. It, it is enough to bring in um, a more mature group of people who might be more serious or about relationships who might, uh, you know, might uh, might be older, might be, uh, you know, might it might be more comfortable for women. And so we've seen over time how, you know, something like that, you know, can can really change, it can can define the success of, of a product by building an audience that's frustrated with one product and saying, OK, what are they mostly frustrated with? And then fixing that. Well, you're touching on something very interesting there, Twitter, right? I mean, one thing they're doing is they implement friction, artificial friction into a product. Uh, to basically uh, to to make it different and and create a different experience, right? And I mean, if you think about the character limit, it would be so easy with a if you think about a comparable different product, right? For the product manager to say, well, like people are asking for more characters, like they're asking for this feature, right? And that's a very hard one. I feel like that's I think something a balance to strike between user research and maybe product strategy, uh, or something in between where. You may get an insight about where people would like to have, maybe like they would have to have, like they like to have it, right? They like to have this feature. They like to have more character limits here. And then you have to say, well, no, we create friction here. We actually say no to that, maybe to that user need because it's such a core aspect of our product experience. Yeah, And I think that's, that's a, such a hard line to draw for a product, I feel. So where do you infuse that? Uh, sort of friction into sort of um, into the product to create a completely different experience or to drive yeah. certain user behaviors. And that's why we should look at Amazon in terms of how they built their platform, the marketplace specifically, from being this little bookstore to, uh, you know, disrupting <laughs> for mostly now in a negative way, you know, the way that we shop worldwide but they started out with the largest user research team of anybody. Okay. I remember when they started out and they, and my friend who worked there was like, there's a hundred user researchers. I was like, no way. That's a thing. You know, this is in the nineties and what they were doing constantly. And they probably still do this now was split testing everything. And Facebook does the same. So let's say you're like, okay, we're going to introduce friction and change this one thing. Well, you don't have to do it for everybody. You can say, okay, we'll try this in this country. We'll just roll this feature out in this state or wherever, and then see how, how it is, you know? And then if it has a good impact, great, roll it out everywhere else. If it has a negative impact, dial it back, you know? But things don't have to be so black and white. Um, you know, I just wish companies move into a more experimental mindset and start uh, walking the talk, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jamie, it was so interesting to listen to your insights and I would love to continue talking to you. I just think we're just getting started here, but unfortunately we are out of time. So I really would like to thank you for sharing all the insights with the, with the audience. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. 
Thank you for having me. Let me just do a little promotional bubble, if that's okay. And I'm planning some workshops in November uh, that are going to be in Sweden and Norway and in, in Greece and in Estonia. So please check out my website, userexperiencestrategy.com or Jamie Levy to find out about those. Also, I have an online master class set to start in January, 2022. So if you want to learn product strategy and get a certificate, um, check that out at the same websites and uh, and check out my audiobook. I narrated it and paid for it myself. And hopefully, um, if my voice isn't too annoying to you now, that uh, you'll be into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think people can really enjoy it. Uh, I, I, I listened to it. Uh, we're going to put the links into the uh, description in the show notes for the audience to, to find that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for having me on your podcast. Thanks for listening to the episode. As a special delight, we now have exclusively a part of the first chapter for you from the audio version of Jamie's new book, UX Strategy. If you like the full audiobook, you can get it on Audible. And for more, just check the links in the description. Enjoy. One, what is UX strategy? Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost. Last year, I was in a bad mood after a Sunday afternoon meeting with a colleague who needed help planning a workshop. Maybe it was because I disdained working on weekends. Maybe it was because commuting from the east side to the west side in Los Angeles is always a horrible idea. Or maybe it was because the thought of leading a glorified brainstorming session for C-suite execs just never sits well with me. Whatever the reasons, my mood got even worse when the car behind me hit mine so hard that my half-eaten foil-wrapped burrito flew from my backseat and into my windshield. The driver and I immediately got off the jammed freeway to safely deal with the incident on a residential street. My car was so smashed up that the gas tank had become unhinged. Fortunately, neither of us was hurt. The other driver was insured and even apologetic. Anyway, while I stood on the side of the road, feeling all my feelings with this stranger, I knew that the next task was to figure out how to process my first claim with my high-tech car insurer, Metromile. Metromile is a San Francisco-based, mid-sized startup that aims to disrupt the auto insurance sector with their innovative business model and use of telematic technologies. Instead of charging customers a fixed premium for a yearly policy, they use a low monthly base rate plus a pay-per-mile pricing fee. Even though I live in Los Angeles, I actually don't drive very much because I don't have a daily commute to a full-time job. So in 2018, I decided to see how much my monthly payments would go down if I switched from a traditional insurance provider to this tech disruptor. A few days after I signed up, I received a small wireless Metromile Pulse device in the mail. Then I plugged it into my car's onboard diagnostic port for tracking my logistical data. In the first month, my monthly premium dropped 40%. I was hooked. But now it was really showtime. The model of insurance as a product is that you pay a company to safeguard you against certain risks, unexpected health crises, natural disasters, or car accidents. Often, 
customers don't really interact with their provider beyond their payments until a need occurs. But MetroMile is different from traditional providers in that it has different touch points. For example, it has a well-designed mobile app that uses their telematics technology to give drivers information about their car's health, location, and driving patterns. And as a curious UXer, I toyed with it from time to time. But generally, when customers in the United States need to interact with their insurers, they navigate a complex, bureaucratic system that is not user-friendly. So how would MetroMile treat me in my smashed-up car? Perhaps the savings were great, but could the entire product turn into a major hassle? Typically, the first thing a U.S. driver does after an accident is call the customer support line of their insurance company. A representative takes down details about the incident and the other driver to open a claim for you on your account. This begins the process through which the insurance investigates and then pays for or reimburses you for any costs. But MetroMile has this process available on their app, and I was game to try it. So while I stood next to the other driver, I went through an intuitive flow that dropped me into their claims funnel. It even used geolocation for finding the exact location of the accident so I didn't need to take note of street signs. In addition, like anybody after an accident, I was rattled. But the app's checklist took care of everything. It made sure I collected the other driver's name and address, took a photo of her license and car insurance, gathered any witness details, and took photos of my car and hers to document the damage. The guidance kept me calm and attentive to the matter at hand. It took less than 10 minutes. The other driver and I hugged goodbye, then parted ways. By the time I got home, there was an email from MetroMile with a list of local repair shops. It also prompted me to choose a rental car provider so that they could meet me at the exact time I chose to drop my car off at the repair shop. While my car was in the shop, I drove around Los Angeles in a cool black Jeep while MetroMile handled negotiations with the other driver's insurer to help me avoid paying my own $500 deductible. Basically, somehow, this startup managed to take what is typically a very fraught customer experience for many Americans and turn it into something frictionless. And their success wasn't just about user experience, UX design. It was actually more about their UX strategy. The evolution of the term UX strategy. I first came across the term UX strategy in print in 2008 in Mental Models by Indy Young. At the time of the book's writing, Young was attempting to help UX design ascend to a more strategic level. As such, she offered her readers the following mini-manifesto along with an equation for experience strategy written by Jesse James Garrett. Experience strategy. The strategy that you develop for your product ought not evolve in isolation. Even though the value of user experience is clear, your overarching reasons for providing something should be considered with equal weight. Jesse James Garrett describes the phrase experience strategy thusly. Experience strategy equals business strategy plus UX strategy. Experience strategy was a new discipline that Young and Garrett were shaping as some of the founders of Adaptive Path in San Francisco. They combined methods from disciplines including business strategy and user research. 
I really wanted to understand what UX strategy meant and why adding business strategy to it turned it into experience strategy. Over the course of my career working with agencies, startups, and enterprises, I've seen and heard many definitions of the term UX strategy. The problem with evolving technology terminology is that it causes confusion for clients, stakeholders, recruiters, HR departments, universities, and, most of all, new designers. I saw the same kinds of semantic debates in the early 2000s with the conflicting interpretations of user experience design and interaction design, and in the early 90s with new media and multimedia. What UX Strategy Was in the First Edition of This Book In the first edition of this book, released in 2015, I said that UX strategy is a process that should be started first before the design or development of a digital product begins. It's the vision of a solution that needs to be validated with real potential customers to prove that it's desired in the marketplace. Although UX design encompasses numerous details, such as visual design, content messaging, and how easy it is for a user to accomplish a task, UX strategy is the big picture. It is the high-level plan to achieve one or more business goals under conditions of uncertainty. The first edition also included an interview with another Adaptive Path founder, Peter Merholtz. In it, he said, In an ideal world, you wouldn't need UX strategy because it would just be a component of your product or business strategy. We're moving into this ideal world, I think, we're seeing more and more often that UX is considered a part of a broader strategy, but I think the separate and distinct concept of UX strategy was necessary for us, at least so we could focus on it, to shine a light on it, and develop a toolkit to then wrap up in product strategy. Fast forward six years and Merholtz was mostly right. The UX strategy practice I described in my first edition is now synonymous with product strategy, Meanwhile, the term UX strategy is most frequently used to mean strategically executing UX at a particular organization or business unit, how the UX department should be run, how to assess and grow your team's capabilities, how to broaden your UX team's reach and influence, and how to prioritize UX projects that can have the most return on investment, ROI. So then, what is product strategy? Traditional product strategy describes who your customers are, how your product fits into the current market, and how it will achieve business goals. It starts with the product vision and ends with a roadmap on how to tactically get there. In an enterprise environment, a clear product strategy is crucial for aligning with stakeholders. It typically is led by a director of product, a product owner, or product manager, the strategy process covers bringing a product to market and taking it through growth and maturity and eventually through decline. But the discipline of product strategy has also evolved. It now places a stronger emphasis on satisfying the customer's needs through user research and design practices, and the job titles are evolving along with it. UX designers now call themselves product designers, and I've watched many former UX strategists rebrand themselves as product strategists. Perhaps I will too. Why strategy for digital products is crucial. 
The purpose of any strategy is to create a game plan that looks at your current position and then helps you get to where you actually want to be. Your strategy should play to your strengths and be mindful of your weaknesses. It should rely on empirical, lightweight tactics that quickly move you and your team, because let's face it, you're probably not doing this alone, toward your desired destination. Strategy goes beyond the abstract nature of design and into the land of critical thinking. Critical thinking is a disciplined thinking that is clear, rational, open-minded, and informed by evidence. A valid strategy is the difference between success and failure. In the digital product world, chaos, time delays, increased costs, and bad user experiences get exacerbated when there is no shared product vision among team members. A shared product vision means that your team and stakeholders have the same mental model for your future product. A mental model is the conceptual model in a person's mind about how a thing works. For instance, when I was 10 years old, I believed the way my mom got cash was by going to a bank, signing a slip of paper, and then receiving the funds from the teller. When I was 20, I believed I needed to take a bank card and key code to access an ATM to get cash. But if you were to ask my 16-year-old son how to get cash, he would tell you to go to the supermarket and ask for cash back when you pay for your groceries. The 2021 mental model for getting cash is very different from the 1976 mental model. That's because new technologies and new business processes come together to offer a more efficient way for people to accomplish tasks. Stale mental models are overturned. Life is disrupted for the better. This is why I prefer to work with open-minded clients, whether they be startup founders or enterprise executives. Open-mindedness means they are receptive to challenges and experimentation, and they understand that there is a chance their initial business idea might not be sustainable. If I see that a potential client is fixated on an idea and not open to the possibility of deviation, then they don't need my help. My favorite clients are the ones who truly want to change a mental model and are open to experimenting their way to a successful outcome. Even though envisioning innovative products is fun, it's hard to get people to change their behavior. Customers have to see the value in the new way before they'll consider abandoning the old. Devising new products to solve serious dilemmas is not for the faint of heart. You must be passionate and at least a little crazy to run headlong into all the obstacles that inevitably will get in the way. Yet it's the passion to solve a problem, change the world, and make it an easier place to live in that makes for game-changing products. And this passion is not limited to entrepreneurs who quit their day jobs. It also emboldens people who have titles like product owner, UX slash product designer, or developer. These are people who are also passionate about using technology to conceive products that customers want. When you bring these types of people together, you have the necessary means to potentially make magic happen and destroy outdated mental models. My goal in this book is to demystify the practice of UX strategy so that you can do just that. You'll be able to immediately apply product strategy techniques to your projects in a variety of settings to keep you and your team from getting overwhelmed no matter what limitations you face. The techniques discussed in this book can be used for inventing a new product or revamping an existing product. 
an existing product is still susceptible to technological advances, new competitors, and shifts in consumer expectations that could unexpectedly shorten its life cycle. As a product matures with a growing user base, it's crucial to revisit your strategy, thus conducting validation experiments to discover new customer segments, marketing channels, and revenue streams is a job that is never done. I'll show you how it can happen through a variety of case studies. I'll even reach back into my family ancestry because I know I was inspired to be entrepreneurial from watching and learning from my family. You'll see how the journey is the reward no matter if you're a teacher, student, or maker. You'll also see that no matter the project or the circumstances, producing inventive products is like being on a roller coaster. And the only way to keep the product on the rails is to use an evidence-based approach for reducing uncertainties. You can face uncertainty in one of two ways. You can take the safe route and avoid making any detours, or you can choose a road less traveled and see where it goes. The first option might be more direct and is certainly easier, but for me, it's far more alluring to blaze a new trail. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments or by taking me in the post, what were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time, cheers.